seat. Thanks so much for worshiping with us today. My name is Matt. I'm one of our production directors here at Northridge. And that basically means that I oversee all of the teams who work behind the scenes to make all of this stuff happen, to create environments where people can worship together. And I just want to brag on those volunteers for a second because they're kind of in one of those jobs where if everything goes right, you don't notice them. It's like a ninja thing. And so I want to give them a little bit of attention. They really do an incredible job every week, which means you probably don't even notice them. And right now, if you're seeing me, it is a direct result of at least at least six of them doing their jobs perfectly. So I'm not going to ask you to clap for them because that would just embarrass the heck out of them. But if you do happen to see one of them over the next couple of weeks, just give them a fist bump and a thank you. Let them know you're grateful. Seriously, production teams, thank you so much for creating environments that honor God and that inspire people. We cannot do this without you. We're so grateful for you. Like I said, my name is Matt, and I'm usually back with that team, which means I'm kind of behind the scenes. But every once in a while, Pastor Drew and the rest of the staff decide to let me out in public. And every time they do that, I pray with everything in me that it goes better than my first public speaking experience. It was the second grade, and everyone in our class had to choose and memorize a poem to recite in front of the rest of the class. And those of us who were the best at reciting the poems got selected to compete against other second graders from all around the city in the speech meet. Now, I'm realizing that this is a thing that, like, apparently isn't super common. So before you, like, I promise, I went to a legitimate school. This wasn't some weird form of torture. But it was a thing that we all did. And so I've always been pretty good at this whole talking thing, and I'm also pretty good at memorizing things. So I went into this with maybe more confidence than I should have. And so I got up there, I was ready to go, and I just completely blanked. Like, like total loss of all cognitive function, it's like the, uh, the zapper thing from Men in Black. Like, we're talking that level of just, I couldn't have even told you what the title of my poem was, let alone what was in it. Now, fortunately, my teacher was kind to me, and she kind of bailed me out a little bit, gave me some prompts, and I was able to get through it and maintain as much dignity as an eight-year-old could possibly have in that situation. So it all turned out okay, which it's funny because if you think about it, that's a really good reminder of our memories, right? Our memories are this incredible thing. We're able to take in information and experiences and like hard code them into a bunch of cells inside of our head in such a way that we can just spit that information back out whenever we need it. It's really incredible, except it's also really glitchy, right? Like how many times have you walked into a room and completely forgot why you walked in the room in the first place, right? That happens to me like once every day at least. Or, or like, wh why is it that I can remember the exact smell of cookies and color of the wrapping paper on my Christmas presents from Christmas of 1997, but when I walk into Wegmans for a gallon of milk, more often than not, I walk out with Pringles, a bag of beef jerky, and no milk. What, what's the deal with that? If our, if our memories were a computer program, they never would have made it out of beta testing. In fact, there's actually a psychological phenomenon called the Mandela effect, which is basically large groups of people all remembering something that just straight up never happened. It, seriously, if you have some time to kill this afternoon, Google it. There's, there's stuff that you think is true that, that you remember happening that just straight up never happened. I will guarantee it. It's really crazy. Which all of this then, to me, makes it really weird how often we are telling people to remember things 
right? It's hard to go through your day without having to run into this. You have to remember your password. You have to remember to take a mask with you when you go outside. You have to remember to pick up milk on the way home. You have to remember to call your mother. It's in all of the movies. There's that song in Coco. We're remembering the Titans. There's a walk to remember. The whole, like, remember who you are, Simba thing. And then there's, like, uh, what, uh, Pete Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. We're constantly remembering things, but it's actually even a lot more serious than that, right? We have funerals and memorial services to remember our loved ones who've passed away. We remember those who gave their lives in service to our country. We remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. We remember 9-11. We're constantly running into scenarios where our memory is playing a significant role in our life. And, and this isn't just a recent thing either. This is, this is something that shows up in the Bible. In fact, God is consistently commanding people to remember things. We just wrapped up a series studying the life of Moses. And did you notice how often this idea shows up in Moses' story? Take a look. Deuteronomy 6.12. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Or how about Deuteronomy 4.9? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. How about Deuteronomy 8.2? Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Deuteronomy 8.11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Or Deuteronomy 8.19. If you ever forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and worship, and bow down to them, I will testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. What's going on here? What's the big deal? Well, I, I, I want to tip my hand a little bit and kind of give you a look at my cards, the point that I'm trying to make today before I even get there, and it's simply this. I think that God wants his track record to serve as a foundation for our faith in hard times. He wants his track record to serve as a foundation for our faith when we face hard times. He wants us to take a look at all the things he's done for his people in the past, take a look at his track record of taking care of his people, and to come to the conclusion that if he did it for them, that he'll also do it for us. Another way you can say it is this. He wants us to come to the conclusion that if he was faithful then, that he'll be faithful now. I think, I think there's a passage found in the book of the Psalms that reflects this a little bit. So let's take a look at Psalm 77. And I'd encourage you, grab your Bible or maybe download an app on your phone and turn to Psalm 77 so you can follow along. And in fact, while you're in the app store, go ahead and grab our Northridge Church app. It's got space for you to be able to take notes and follow along as well. And while you're doing that, I just want to give you a little bit of background on what is going on here in this passage. The book of Psalms is just a collection of songs that ancient Israel used in their worship. It's just a whole bunch of songs. And this particular song is kind of interesting because we know a little bit about the guy who wrote it. If you take a look at the beginning of Psalm 77, there's a little heading in your Bible that says this, for the director of music, for Jedithan of Asaph, a psalm. So this particular song was written for a director of music, specifically for a guy named Jedithan, by another guy whose name was Asaph. Now, other passages in the Bible tell us that Asaph was one of the chief musicians in the nation of Israel, which 
Seems like a pretty cool gig, but at least I think that also makes Asaph a pretty relatable guy, which isn't always true of people in other parts of the Bible, right? Take, for instance, a lot of Psalms written by King David. He's royalty, the king of the nation, lives in a palace, wealthy. I've never done any of those things. Also, another person who wrote some Psalms, Moses. We just studied his life for like eight weeks. This dude did stuff that would make the Avengers jealous. Like when I, when I need manna from heaven, I can't just walk outside and pick it up. I have to get in my car and find a Chick-fil-A in order to get there. These guys aren't exactly relatable, right? But Asaph isn't like that. Asaph is actually just a regular guy who happens to be a musician. He doesn't have superpowers. He doesn't have a royal bloodline. He's a normal dude making a living, doing something that he is skilled at which makes him feel like the kind of guy who might actually be able to empathize with some of my normal people problems. But even more than that, Asaph is also a guy who works in the temple. He spends his entire life in and around the building where the presence of God dwells on earth, which means that he's the kind of guy that we would expect to have this whole faith thing figured out, right? But when we read this passage, we find that's not the case at all. In fact, he's actually like, having some serious questions and doubts right here. And I think that should be super encouraging to us because if a guy who spends his life a hundred yards away from the presence of God on earth is having questions about his faith, I think that means it's okay for us to have questions too. Fun little side note, Jedithin, the guy who he wrote this song to, is another one of the musicians in the temple. So what you're looking at here is literally a dude talking to one of his bandmates and basically being like, yo, check out this new jam I wrote. That doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about, but it does make me laugh to think about. So there's that. Anyways, Psalm 77. Let's see what's going on here. Asaph says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord, and at night I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. Okay, so our guy here is straight up not having a good time right now. He's experiencing some sort of trouble, and he's reaching out to God for help. We don't know exactly what he's going through. It might be a health issue. It might be a relationship gone sour. Maybe he's living in the middle of a global pandemic on top of an economic recession all in an election year. Maybe that's just us. Anyways, regardless, he's experiencing a problem, and it's bad enough that it's keeping him from sleeping. And remember, this is an average guy who's writing this, which means whatever his problem is, we can probably relate to it. Let's see what he says next. Verse 3, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to even speak. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. He thought about God. He meditated on God. He spent time reading scripture and praying. In fact, he's doing all of the right things here and checking all of the right boxes, and he's still apparently not getting any relief with this problem. Now, that's not to say that these are bad things to do. In fact, there are other passages in the Bible that suggest these are the exact steps he should be taking. In fact, he even wrote some other passages about this exact thing. These are helpful healing steps you can take, but they aren't magic bullets, it's not like we can crack open a Bible and all suddenly our problems are gone and everything is sunshine and rainbows. Suffering is a real and present reality of living in a broken and sin-filled world. And any version of faith that promises that your spirituality will be instantly rewarded with health and wealth and a life free of problems should be immediately causing us to be skeptical because that's just not what the Bible teaches and it's not what we see in real life either. 
Yeah, do we sometimes make bad choices in our spiritual life that have consequences? Yes. Is God's way the best, most pain-free way to live life? Yes, I believe that it is, but the reality is it's not that simple. And at the end of the day, we live in a broken world. And God hasn't promised us a life free of pain. What he has promised us is that he'll be with us through the pain and that one day he's going to make everything new again. And our friend Asaph is running right up against this issue. Let's take a look. Verse 5. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Asaph saying, God, with all due respect, what the heck, man? You said you were going to be faithful. You made promises and said you were going to keep them. And yet I'm standing here and I'm not seeing any of it. What is going on? And if we're honest, I think we've all been there, right? We've all had a moment where it felt like God isn't quite living up to his end of the bargain. Your health is failing. Your career is crumbling. You're watching your kids or your spouse make terrible decisions. A loved one passes away. Your city is filled with injustice and violence. I mean, I don't know if you're playing along at home, but I'm talking to a room of empty chairs right now because of a global pandemic and having church online like isn't even in the top 50 worst things that happened this year. If we're honest... We've probably all had a moment where God and us aren't on the best of terms because it seems like God isn't quite holding up his end of the bargain. You know, in fact, maybe this is the reason that you walked away from your faith altogether. Because you grew up here, you grew up in church, and God talked this really, really big game and then just never showed up. This is where Asaph finds himself. But interestingly, it isn't where he stops. Here's, he's at a bit of a fork in the road here, and he's got a choice to make. Let's see what he does. Verse 10, he says this, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great is our God. You are the God who performs miracles, and you display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed, and the very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, but your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Notice what Asaph just did there. He makes a conscious decision to flip his focus off of the trouble that he's facing and instead focus on God's acts towards the people of Israel in history, specifically the Exodus story where God led his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And he's making a conscious choice to say that I believe, God, that you are still that God. And if you could do all of that, then I believe that you can figure out this thing that I'm dealing with right now. 
Asaph says, you parted the Red Sea for your people. I believe that you can mend this broken relationship. He says, you provided manna for your people for 40 years. I believe that you can meet my needs while I'm unemployed again because of COVID. He says, you worked miracles and raised up kings and slayed giants and won wars, ended droughts and provided food. And I choose to believe in the middle of everything that I'm facing that you'll do it again. And what I love or if I'm kind of honest, I don't love it, but I'm glad it's in here about this passage, is that there isn't an immediate happy ending. There's no verse 21 that just says, and then I thought about these things, and everything got better. For all we know, Asaph's situation never gets better. God, in his love and sovereignty, may have decided that his plan needed to include whatever Asaph was facing. Again, our faith isn't about finding magic bullets and five-step programs to a pain-free life. Instead, what Asaph does find is something even better. He finds hope, and he finds hope in a God who has and will continue to deliver his people and who will one day make everything new again. And I think he finds that God, who seemed so far off just 20 verses ago, is actually right there alongside him in the midst of his pain. Why is that? Well, because if God was faithful then, we can trust him to be faithful now. So now that we've established this idea, let's get practical here. Because we've already, we've already said that our memories are really weird and just sometimes straight up don't work. So it seems kind of silly to just count on our own ability to remember the things that God has done in the past. We have to find a way to like force ourselves to remember, to, to remind, to remember, to remember, if you will. And as usual, the Bible doesn't leave us hanging here because the people in the Bible are at the end of the day, normal people, just like you and me with the same weaknesses and the same struggles. And we find that all throughout the Bible, there's this unique solution that people put in place in order to help themselves remember what God has done for them. They do that by setting up monuments and that's not a technical term or anything. A monument is simply this. It's an object created to remind its observers of something significant. An object created to remind its observers of something significant. It's a physical object that someone put together so that they'll have an opportunity in the future to remember something important that happened. Take a look at some examples of these. Exodus chapter 16, verse 32. Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer, it's a little less than a gallon of manna, and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant of the law so that it might be preserved." How about Exodus 24? Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He sets up a pillar of stone as a reminder. Deuteronomy chapter 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Check this. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frame of your houses and on your gates. Orthodox Jews still do that to this day. They literally take pieces of God's word and strap them to their bodies as a reminder of what God has done for them. Joshua chapter 4, Joshua calls together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he says to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. 
Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you so that in the future your children ask you, what does these stones mean? Tell them the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And maybe the most significant monument in the life of ancient Israelite is the celebration of Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in, in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In fact, this particular moment has added significance to us as Christians today because right before Jesus was crucified, he ate a Passover meal with his followers and he kind of hijacked that and gave it new meaning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, that means that every time we celebrate communion as a church together, we're doing this exact thing. We're remembering something God did for us and using that to build our faith going forward. So as a church, we do this together on a routine basis to force ourselves to remember what Jesus did for us. So then, what do we do with all of this? What are the practical steps that we can take to live this principle out? Well, first, I think we have to find God's faithfulness. This, this might seem obvious, but if we're going to allow God's track record of faithfulness to inspire our faith moving forward, we have to start by looking at God's track record. We have to spend some time reflecting and finding occasions when God came through for us. That time you lost your job, and in the process, a door opened that began the new career that you now love. Or that time that a relationship ended which drove you to better and deeper relationships with God and your community. You have to find moments where God has been faithful in your life. And this isn't all just about finding bad experiences that somehow turned out okay. Think about all the things that God just straight up provided for you in the first place. No struggle or pain involved. Or maybe think about all the situations that God spared you from. That bad choice that you almost made but chose not to because it just didn't sit right with you for some reason all the times that he protected you from ever feeling the painful situation in the first place. And you know what? Maybe even that's hard for you. I understand that. I, I, don't, I don't know your story. Maybe you need to look back on God's faithfulness to someone else, a friend, a family member. In fact, maybe you just need to do what Asaph did here and look back on God's faithfulness to his people in the story of the Bible. If we're going to let God's track record of faithfulness build our faith in hard times, we have to begin by finding that track record. And then, second, we need to set up a monument. Got to set up a monument. Once you've established God's track record, you need to put up a reminder that forces you to remember that track record. Something that, that breaks you out of your normal routine and drags your attention back to what God did for you. Maybe you need to start a journal that you can read back through in the future. And this doesn't have to be anything crazy. Like, I'm not saying that you have to, like, dear diary your whole life away. Just, like, log three things that you're thankful for every day. 
Or, or maybe make an Instagram post every day that, high, that gives the highlights and hard points of your particular day. And then revisit those things every so often. Heck, maybe even do it on Facebook and let the little time hop thingy be the thing that reminds you so you can see what was going on at this time a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Just start a journal. Start writing something down that you can look back on. Or maybe you need to memorize some scripture and make reciting it a part of your morning routine. Or tape a note card with that passage on your dashboard. Hang a picture that reminds you of something significant on your mirror. Put a card in your wallet so that you have to touch it every time you make a purchase. Buy a decoration. Set an alarm on your phone. Build it into your workout routine. Get a tattoo. Yes, I just said that. Do something to force yourself to physically think about God's faithfulness, to trip over that reminder of God's faithfulness and what he's done. Make it impossible for you to go through your life without thinking about God's grace and what he's done for you in the past. In fact, this is actually why we make such a big deal out of baptism here at Northridge. We don't, we don't think that baptism has some magical power that washes your sin away. That happens when you place your faith in Jesus. So, so you don't need baptism to get into heaven. You aren't a second-class Christian if you aren't baptized. But what it is is a monument in your life. It's a moment that you can look back on and when you're in times of doubt and say, my faith was real and it made a difference. And in fact, there are a bunch of other people who saw it happen who can back that story up. Third, third, this is the hard step, guys. We have to choose faith. You see, at the end of the day, it's not enough for us to just have our memory refreshed. At the best, that just brings us to a fork in the road. When we face times of doubt, we have a choice to make. See, see, we can believe that God has changed, that he no longer has our best interests in mind, that he no longer has the power to protect and care for us, or, or we can believe that he's still faithful, that he's still good, and that he's still powerful, just like he was for Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David and Jesus and Paul and Peter and hundreds of generations of Christians before us. And that maybe, just maybe, we just don't see it right now. We can choose that he's still faithful and we just don't see the end game. And this is hard. This might be one of the hardest things we will ever ask you to do here in church, because I'm asking you to stand at a fork in the road where your head knows one thing to be true and your feelings and everything inside of you are screaming the opposite. And I'm asking you to fix your eyes on God. Even when everything in your life and everything around you is saying, no, he's given up on you. He can't still be there for you. I'm asking you to stare that in the face and say, no, I know that he's good. And I know that he's powerful. And I know that he's faithful. And I know that his love for me will never fail. See, I, I think one of the enemy's greatest tactics against us is that he causes us to immediately doubt our feelings of faith. And at the same time, accept all of our feelings of doubt without even questioning them. You can have years of faith-filled experience with God. You're studying his word. You're being a part of his church. You're seeing him work in your lives and in others' lives. And then the second difficulty comes around, you start thinking thoughts like, ah, I was just a kid. 
I didn't know what I know now. Or, or, I mean, it was really just an emotional experience, right? Like the preacher was talking and the, the piano was going. It could, I mean, it was just caught up in the moment. But then when we have feelings of doubt, we don't even, we don't even think to question them. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that we brush aside hard questions, that we ignore the things that don't seem to add up. I, I'm not arguing for an emotionless, anti-intellectual, blind faith version of Christianity. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying to take those doubts seriously enough to look into them, to investigate them, to try them, test them, make them prove themselves, and then do the exact same thing for your feelings of faith. See, I'm not scared of you pulling back the curtain and digging around because I believe that this whole thing isn't built on smoke and mirrors. I believe that there's a real, logical foundation to all of this that will stand the test of time. G.K. Chesterton's an old theologian. He said it this way. He says, Christianity hasn't been found tried and found wanting. He says, it's been found difficult and then not tried. See, we have to make a choice. Which do we believe? Do we believe our feelings of doubt? Do we believe our present circumstances? Or do we believe that the God who has been faithfully working since the beginning of creation, who loved us enough to willingly give himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sins and make all things new again, do we believe that if he was faithful then, that he can be faithful now? Romans 8 says it like this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Lastly, we have to share our faith with others. We have to share our faith with others around us. One of the consistent themes that pops up all of these stories is that people set up monuments, not just for their own benefit, but for the people who come after them. Israel celebrates the Passover so that their children can be reminded. They've set up a pile of stones so that when future generations see it, they will be reminded. This is the same for you and for me. Get this. Your story, the story of God's faithfulness in your life, how he worked in your life, might just be the reminder that someone else needs in order to make it through the struggle that they're facing. We were never meant to keep all this to ourselves. Our story can be a powerful catalyst for faith in someone else. And this year has been hard for so many of us. If we're honest, I think we're all a little tired. Okay, maybe we're a lot tired. And maybe even at a place where we're starting to wonder where God's at in all of this. Does he still care? Is he in control? Well, today I believe that we've got a choice to make. We can choose to look at our circumstances and the struggle that we're facing, and we can believe that God has changed, that he no longer has our best interests in mind, that he no longer can do the things that he said he was going to do. Or we can choose to believe that the God who is faithful for generations and generations will still be faithful, that if he was faithful then, that he'll be faithful right now. That's our choice today. Let's pray together. God, you are faithful. And you are good. And frankly, that's maybe something that I'm saying that I don't feel right now as much as I should. But I want to make a choice. 
And I want all of us to make a choice, God, that we choose faith. That no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're staring down, that we choose to believe that you are who you say you are. That if you were faithful back then, that you can be faithful to us right now. So God, give us the strength to make those choices. To live our lives in light of your faithfulness instead of in light of our circumstances. We do this all by your grace that you've given to us so freely through Jesus' sacrifice in our place. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.